welcome to Not Alone in the Land podcast, a discussion on mental health with advocates and experts on topics to end the stigma and increase awareness in the community. Here are your hosts, Portia Booker and Megan Rochford. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Not Alone in the Land podcast. I'm your host, Portia Booker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Miss Megan Rochford. Megan, what is your favorite accomplishment in 2021 so far? Well, so far in 2021, I would have to say that it is getting my garden in order. It's been, you know, such a uh, joy and a treasure and a pleasure to be outside making things grow. We had kind of a garden disaster last year where uh, so, you know, some kind of a garden disease took over and I didn't have anything fresh coming out of the garden, but so far so good. Everything is growing and it's, and it's really, really great. You know, Megan, I can second that even though I'm not, uh, my mom has the green thumb. I don't, it's not that I kill plants. It's just, I don't have <laughs> the attention span like my mom does, uh-huh. but I will admit like our front yard, especially our rose bush yeah. has bloomed so much this year. I mean, I haven't seen it bloom like this in years. Wow. Roses, are, they're pink. They're pink roses. My mom said that it's been there since the the 80s. Wow. My, uh, my uncle planted it there for my great grandmother. And when I tell you, you can smell them the minute you come out the door. It's like, oh, my God, like summer is here. I mean, just it just reminds me of her when I, when I see it and when I, you know, go over and smell them. I've taken so many po- photos of them. I'm sure you've seen them on my Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> but Megan, I would say my accomplishment for 2021 is doing this podcast because, wow. you know, as I've said, you know, on many different interviews and even on my own show grew with Portia that mental health should be an everyday conversation. And, you know, when you embark on a mental health journey, it's mm-hmm. scary you know, yeah. because you have all the stigma from not just, you know, in the healthcare field, but also like the, the stigmas that we put on ourselves too, right? You know, yeah. so just getting this started, having these great conversations and, you know, keeping people educated on something new in mental health. So Megan, who do we have today? I know, you know, this is going to be a little different. So for our listeners who are tuning in, you know, we're going to be discussing different types of therapy. You know, most people are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, maybe play therapy, you know, Reiki, maybe acupuncture, which I like acupuncture, but you know, <laughs> we're going to be discussing discussing different types of therapies for people to, you know, get familiar with them. Maybe, you know, some of these might work for some of you. So Megan, who do we have today? So today we're joined by uh, Chris Favro, who is a licensed independent social worker and psychotherapist. And Chris is certified in a particular type of therapy called eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. We're just delighted to have her with us. Thanks for being here, Chris. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Chris, I'm excited to learn more about your type of specialty because I've heard of it. It's so funny because I told Megan, my doctor recommended it for me. 
And I was like, what is this? This sounds like something in like a storybook. Of course, you know, that's how my brain works. Everything is like a book or some type of story. So Chris, you know, for starters, you know, why did you choose a career in mental health? Did you maybe have a family member, you know, introduce you? Did you maybe intern at, you know, maybe like a mental health facility or have close friends at one time? Tell our listeners a little bit of why you pursued a career in mental health. Sure. Um, Actually, this is my second career. So I went to graduate school back in the day for cognitive psychology, which is a a brain type of psychology. I wanted to be a researcher. That didn't work out. So I spent a little over 20 years in IT doing business intelligence stuff, data analysis. Then I I was about 40 years old. I had my midlife crisis. (laughs) And so everything changed. Um, I got a divorce. I moved. I got my own place. And I started thinking about my job. I was working for an insurance company and making good money. And I just one day thought to myself, is this how I want to spend my life making money for an insurance company? And so not too long after that, I was talking to my mother, who was also a therapist. And I said, I'm, I'm curious, I might want to move in that direction. Well, the next week, she got a postcard from Youngstown State saying they were starting up a program at Walden University, uh, which is about 10 minutes from my home. And I said, okay, that's it, off I go. (laughs) So I quit my job, went back to school, got my master's in social work. And then along the way, I ran into EMDR and it's a brain therapy. So because of my background, I was hooked right away. Mm -hmm. So interesting. And so many sort of serendipitous things happened there, Chris, to bring you to EMDR. It sounds like you just kind of uh, got a really good ticket to ride at a certain point where when that postcard showed up, I think that's so cool that you just jumped on that and, and, and things took off from there. So let's talk a little bit about EMDR uh, for our listeners. That's one of our goals here with this uh, series that we're doing on the podcast is to kind of demystify you know, certain types of therapy. If you could compare EMDR to an amusement park ride, let's say at Cedar Point, for example, which one would you say it would be? Well, I have to say, Portia, I'm glad that I got this a little bit in advance. The last time I was at Cedar Point was in the mid 90s. Um, but <laughs> I went I went on the website and I found this Cedar Creek mine ride. So I have a short uh-huh. quote. It says Cedar Creek mine ride doesn't just send riders soaring up hills through tunnels and over water. No, sir. It transports people back in time all the way to the Wild West. I loved that idea because even though we sometimes have a single incident that happens that results in kind of a long-term trauma response, oftentimes the challenges we have today are actually a re-experiencing of past trauma. So one of my uh, trainers in EMDR, the quote I have from her is the smoldering fires of the past ignite in the present. Mm -hmm. So EMDR can be used both for a single incident, say an accident or an assault, or it can be very effective with trauma that begins early on in your life and childhood and continues forward. So there's a lot of layers there. And it sounds like uh, one of the things you want listeners to know is that EMDR can make a difference for for very painful, big kind of experiences that they that they've had that kind of just you know live inside of them. I it's making me think about this quote. I remember one time reading from Maya Angelou. I think it was something like, "There's there's no greater agony than uh, bearing uh, an untold story inside you," and 
it sounds like EMDR is one way to kind of uh, take that story and unpack it and, and make a new meaning out of it. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about what that's like for people? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly it. And this happens in our, this is brain therapy. So it's, it's not really talk therapy as we see in many other types of therapies. We do talk obviously and create a rapport um, and in earlier parts of the therapy, but in terms of actually healing from our trauma, it's our brain that needs to heal. So just a little bit about that. Um, we have kind of three brains. We've got the brain that keeps our heart beating keeps us breathing. We've got the brain that stores our emotions and our fight flight freeze responses. And then we have our frontal brain and that's how we do calculus. You know, it's a logical brain. It makes rational decisions. So what happens during a traumatic experience is that older brain, the emotional brain gets activated. And what happens is the things that are going by our experience is stored not as a memory, but as kind of like a frozen trauma, we can call it a trauma chunk, whatever we want to do. Um, and that's usually comprised of just sensory experiences. So it could be a sight or a sound or a smell, or any combination of those things. And the problem is that that material isn't wired into our front brain. Our front brain is where we bring up memory. So I can bring up the memory of like the day of my divorce and it was pretty icky, you know, but I can talk about it. It's no big deal. If I had an incident where I was three years old and my mom left me in the house with no food and I've got that memory of starving and not being able to find food, that material gets stored just in that emotional part of the brain. And when something triggers it, maybe the first piece of food that I found was a cracker, a Ritz cracker. And I see a Ritz cracker today and all of a sudden, boom, I'm transported back into that experience of being three years old and starving and not being able to, to get food. So, so what EMDR does is it allows us to pull up that traumatic material and wire it into the front of our brain. So once that happens, the memory, the, the material just becomes a memory, kind of like my memory of my divorce. It, it's never gonna be a good memory, but it's kind of a neutral memory. And then the other thing that it does is it changes the beliefs that we have about ourselves that were created during that time. So as three years old, my mom left. I don't know what's going on. I might think that it's somehow my fault or that there's something wrong with me or that I'm a bad person. And those beliefs persist again through time and into the present. So during EMDR, those beliefs start to shift into more adaptive beliefs. Wait, that wasn't my fault. I was three years old right? We're starting to see this as it really is. I, I'm not a bad person. I was three years old and I was stuck in this house. Um, and that had nothing, that means nothing about me. So, you know, if you put those things together, you can see how this is transformational. We have folks that get and have a diagnosis of like PTSD. And so there's all these criteria and we start to see those things just evaporate. And so the folks that I work with, some of them, come in and they meet criteria for, for PTSD or acute stress disorder. And then after a week or a month or a year, they don't meet criteria anymore. Yeah. They have healed from that trauma. Mm, that's what we want. We want yeah. more people to be healed. I mean, because Chris, I want to go back to one thing you said about beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from personal experience that 
sometimes the beliefs that we carry with us, we think are positive, but really are more damaging to us than what we think. For example, I've always believed that I have to be a workaholic yes. to be successful. Yes. But I mean, look at what happens when you become a workaholic. Mm-hmm. You're, you're working yourself to death, putting, you know, 10 to 14 hours into your day. You're losing time on sleep. You're losing out on your social life. And we're social people. Absolutely. We need interaction. And so really, I was depleting myself of all the things that brought me joy to the point that I pretty much put myself into a hole because of that belief that I have to work extra hard to get ahead. Right. Absolutely. And so that's also a coping mechanism, right? If I'm working, then I don't have to worry about other things. I can focus, right? I'm guessing you're very, very ultra focused on your work. And so during those times, you don't have to kind of worry about anything else that's going on in your life or even has gone on in the past. And Chris, I want to go back to what you mentioned about trauma. I think when we think about trauma, we believe it has to be something so traumatic as in a car accident, a near-death experience, watching somebody get shot or something. Can you touch a little bit on that, Chris, about how trauma is not necessarily those types of things, but even in the example you mentioned about not having food on the table, what other events in our lives could be traumatic. So you're talking more about like a long-term, like a early traumatic experiences versus single incidents that often happen as adults. So patterns, patterns of um, experience starting at a very young age. I could talk for a long time about attachment theory. So if our primary caregiver can't give us what we need when we're infants and toddlers and our brain is wiring together, then a lot of the material that gets wired is about these negative beliefs about self. And as human beings, we function based on those beliefs about ourselves. So if we at a very young age start in maybe a neglectful home, an abusive home, we could just be witnessing abuse, right? Not even have it happen to us or it could be happening to us. And we develop these beliefs that anything bad that happens is my fault, that I'm a bad person, the most challenging belief I deserve to suffer. So those beliefs get wired into our little brains and then we act out of those beliefs, right? So if I'm a person who by age five believes I deserve to suffer, then I'm gonna roll into a life with people who make me suffer because that's what I believe I deserve. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. But can you go into like when when people are adults, right, we think that we're invincible sometimes, that something that may be traumatic from the eyes of the public, such as a, a divorce or a, you know, a car accident, we often think, oh, my God, I can't talk about what I'm currently going through. For example, I know for me, I didn't grow up with my father mm-hmm. around. And so, you know, growing up without him and and thinking that, him not being present in my life was my Mm -hmm. fault. I had my therapist tell me that that was a belief that I carried with me throughout my whole life. Yes, exactly. Until recently. And so, you know, for example, another thing is job loss. You know, people don't realize that 
losing their job can be traumatic because of some of the things that they went through as in their childhood. So Chris, can you touch a little bit on maybe some common things that people go through that can be traumatic that most people may not think such as like a job loss or, you know, the loss of a pet or something like that? Oh, absolutely. You said loss of a pet. So I've had anticipatory grief for my dog for a couple years now, right? Um, Here's the thing is that trauma is completely individual, completely individual. It's trauma if we have a trauma response to it. So say we're both sitting in a room and the door's closed and all of a sudden we hear a knock and then the door flies open. You might say, oh, great, lunch has arrived. I might say, oh my God, it's an active shooter. Then the person that walks, the, that flies in the door is just like, oh, hey, I wanted to let you know that, you know, there's a meeting coming up. I wanted to make sure you're, you're not gonna be late. So from your perspective, the stuff that's stored is a memory, right? Of knock on the door, open, oh my gosh, we gotta wrap this up. For me, what's stored is trauma that event, the physiological response, our body, the way my body um, reacts to that, and it gets stored in that way. So from from that perspective, you know, what we've learned, and this this is just a fact, is that anything can be a traumatic experience depending on, in particular, what it, um, ignites from, you know, from the past that links in with something. Maybe, um, maybe my dad was emotionally abusive, verbally abusive. And when I was young, you know, he would come in the door and start yelling at me. That could be one way. Another way could be, I watched the coverage of a school shooting. And when this event happens, it triggers that for me. Um, 9-11 created a lot of trauma across the country, right? Even though we weren't there. We weren't even close to there. Losing a job, absolutely. For for a workaholic in particular, losing a job, devastating, very traumatic. Divorce is traumatic, any kind of accident. Losing, losing someone, be that a person or an animal, um, any kind of accident. Honestly, the that's one of the challenges as human beings is we tend to invalidate our own trauma. So mm-hmm. stuff happens to me and I say, oh gosh, that's not so bad. Look at what happens to other people in the world or in the country. So this isn't so bad. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't bring it up. I shouldn't worry about it. I shouldn't let myself feel it. And I think that that's, um, that's a travesty because we're, if we can't accept our own trauma for what it is, then how do we, how do we heal from it? And that is such an important thing to be thinking about, right? Is how how do we heal uh, from from trauma? And I wonder, Chris, I have uh, tried this for myself, just as part of my you know professional development as a therapist, just to to better understand what my clients that I might refer to this uh, you know would experience. And it's a unique kind of therapy. It really is. I wonder if you could kind of walk our listeners through what they might expect in a in a typical EMDR session. Mm-hmm. Okay, so EMDR is definitely a process. The first thing that we do is we spend a little time history taking, getting to know each other. Just like with every kind of therapy, I think rapport, the way that we connect is the most important thing um, because I'm gonna be present for the most horrific moments of your life, holding space. And you need to trust me for, for that to happen. Then we move into preparation phase where we do 
something that's called resourcing. And so that is a combination of grounding exercises, guided visualizations, things of that nature that are going to help as you go through the process to manage whatever emotions come up during session and in between session. Um, we also decide what are we going to work with? Are there themes? One of the cool things about EMDR is you can tell me anything you want and you don't have to tell me anything you don't want. Some people don't want to talk about their trauma and EMDR works either way. Um, so then we set up, kind of set up a target. We find a specific memory and a negative belief related to that memory. And that's what we're going to work with. So then maybe in the next session, we go back to that memory and we kind of activate it. So I asked them about the target, the memory, the image or sensation of the worst part, the negative belief, how disturbing is it from zero to 10, um, emotions and what's going on in your body. And then I say, okay, I'd like you to just let whatever needs to happen happen. And I start what's called bilateral stimulation. So it's kind of like a technical term, but the eye movement is one of the things that we can use. And the client would just follow my fingers moving back and forth with their eyes. I often use these things called tappers that they hold and they kind of buzz back and forth left and right. The only thing that's important is that we're having left right activation in the body. So what that does is it brings those memories up and it allows the brain to wire them into the frontal cortex and make new meaning of them. Um, during this process, the client is kind of free associating. We go for 30 to 60 seconds with these back and forth movements. And then I stop and we both take a nice deep breath, check in, and I say, what's coming up or what are you noticing? And, and the client can just give me a word or a phrase. The room was blue. And I say, okay, go with that. And off we go again. And then it's kind of wash, rinse, repeat. What's happening is we're allowing the brain to heal. The client is allowing the brain to go wherever it needs to go. The room was blue. I went to my prom. I remember my first dog. Whatever it is, it's kind of whatever the brain needs to bring up. And then the other thing that we want to make sure of, and, and a main part of my job, because anybody can move their fingers, right, is to really be present with the client and noticing, are they able to stay here in the room or are they going back to that event, what's called a flashback or dissociation? And if I notice any indication of that, I've got to stop, check in with them, and make sure they're back in the room because we don't want the healing to be re-experiencing. Re-experiencing is not healing. We want the person to be in the room with, with us and we are looking at what happened, watching what happened. So sometimes we'll use the metaphor of a movie screen. We're gonna watch the movie of your trauma. You can make it black and white. You can fast forward and think about the roller coaster. We can go really, really fast. You know, you can allow your brain to just, right? Or slow down going up a hill. And in that process, over time, the brain does rewire. Well, Chris, I must say, you've said a mouthful, <laughs> but I could literally, I could picture myself just now sitting, you know, in front of either you or someone and just opening up about something that was traumatic to me that happened, you know, and I mean, I can tell you not to get too personal, but I will is my TV experience. Mm -hmm. When I was a television producer, a lot of people didn't know that that was 
a very traumatic experience in my life. Like people say, oh, you, you lose jobs all the time. But it's different when, like you just said, trauma is unique to each person. But when it's something that you worked so hard for to get, I think that's what really is the detrimental part is people don't understand the journey of how hard you had to work to get somewhere. And Chris, another thing I love is that you do your check-ins with people. I think that's definitely key for healing because I think a lot of times in mental health, there's kind of this negative association or connotation with people who are mental health providers. Chris, one of the things, you know, that I think a lot of people would probably love to know is for this type of therapy Uh, that you're specializing mm in, I'm curious to know how long does it take? What are the requirements? Because it because specialties tend to take some time, but I'm sure that for you too, you had to go through quite probably several hours or years of some type of training. So in order to even be trained, you need to be a mental health professional. So either thinking about a marriage and family therapist, a counselor, a social worker, a psychologist, psychiatrist. The basic training is six days, 40 hours of training, which is teaching and practicing. So you get to be a client during your training and then 10 hours of consultation. So you go back to your job and you start to put your toes in the water and then you get together with an approved consultant, ask them questions and they help you along. Once you get through that, that takes six months to a year. Now you're a trained therapist, but to be certified, you need 20 more hours of consultation. So it's a long process. If you, so if you did one consultation a month, that would be almost two more years. Um, and then, of course, if you want to be a consultant, that's another 20 hours. So let's say maybe four or five years to get all the way through the process. But you can do the basic training and the 10 hours of consultation, and you can start using EMDR with your clients. Cool. I mean, that, uh, it's, I'm just so glad that that's available and that this is uh, something that people can try. You know, I've heard so many clients over the years say that this has made like an, an immeasurable difference in their lives, that they feel wholly different as humans after going through it. And that for the first time, you know, they feel like they have control of what happened to them in some way, rather than having the trauma control them. And Absolutely. so- what would you suggest, Chris, if someone were to say, hey, you know, I, I, this has been really interesting. I, I've had some things happen in my life and I'm, I'm kind of giving this some thought now. How would I find a therapist who offers EMDR? Oh, go to my website. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Um, so the best place to go is called EMDRIA. So it's E-M-D-R-I-A dot mm-hmm. org. That's the International Association of EMDR Therapists and Providers. You can go there and put your um, zip code in and it will uh, give you a list and it will let you know how far folks are in the journey. So if they're basic trained, if they're certified consultant training or consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also go to Psychology Today. I think Andrea is a better resource if you're specifically looking for EMDR therapy. Okay, so a, lot, a couple possibilities there. Did you also want to mention your website, Chris, in case someone in particular wanted to contact you? Absolutely. So my website is a space for healing, all one word.com. Um, I started private practice last year. In the beginning of this year, I started a group practice. So now there are three of us, and we're all EMDR trained and very trauma focused. That's so cool. Yay, we get more people healed. I mean, Chris, this is. 
you know, definitely been a just a phenomenal conversation. I mean, I've learned so much just from hearing you talk. I can tell you're passionate about what you do. Absolutely, I am. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, trauma affects all of us at some point in our life. And we all need to be able to get that out of us in order for us to heal. Because look at, you know, how things from our childhood continue into our adult life and we don't even know it. We don't think about just that one experience of, you know, not having food in, in the house can affect the way that we live, you know, the way that we try to go to work, the way that we interact with people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I firmly believe everyone has trauma. I have avoided using um, too many like PTSD and things like that because I like to think of it as trauma and we have symptoms of trauma. We all do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't, we don't have to put a label on it. Some people like labels and that's okay. But um, I just think it's all healing work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Megan, what are your final thoughts? Well, I would just say that, you know, we, we would encourage anybody who's thinking about this, you know, to just uh, to take that first stop, you know, and if, if NAMI can help you kind of navigate finding someone who does EMDR, give us a call at our helpline, uh, 216-875-7776. We'd be happy to, you know, talk you through the process of uh, looking through those resources that Chris mentioned, or to talk to you a little bit more about, you know, how this therapy uh, might, might be a benefit. Uh, and to do anything else that might assist you with starting your recovery journey. Megan, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of interested now, <laughs> even more so. <laughs> I mean, because at first when my doctor mentioned it, I was a little like, Ugh. I was a little hesitant. But yeah. I just said, you know what? After hearing Chris's very detailed explanation, I feel more comfortable. And I yeah. think that, you know, that's important is just giving people just a little bit of information to make it more concrete and not so, like you said in the beginning, mysterious, you know, kind of like walking through the, the foggy waters. I just instantly think of like that old 90s movie with uh -huh. a gigantic snake in the water. <laughs> like I just think of that, you know, you don't know what's lurking unless you physically see it. So yes. Chris, thank you so much for, you know, coming on and sharing this information with our listeners. Like I said, you got me excited. Chris, one of my favorite questions to always ask, you know, what words of hope can you leave with our listeners today? You've left a lot, but for somebody who, you know, maybe is like me at one point, who was a little on the hesitant side about taking that next leap of faith and learning more about this type of therapy or just pursuing any type of therapy and overcoming their trauma, what words of hope can you leave with them today? Well, the first thing is that uh, in our mental health profession, we don't stigmatize. We're excited when people come in to kind of check out and see if we can help them. And, you know, our first session is like people are interviewing me, right? And, and so we can help you find a good fit. And once you feel someone that comfortable with and that you can trust, this whole roller coaster can finally come into port. Um, you're not alone and you can heal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Megan, is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, just that it works. You know, it, I know it sounds uh, kind of unusual and maybe a little unconventional, but you can, you can trust the process and know that th this is, uh, this is the kind of therapy that really makes a difference. Uh, and, and so give it a try. I second that we have to be open when it comes to our mental health. You know, not every treatment works for everybody. So find what 
is more comfortable for you. Well, that concludes another episode of Not Alone in the Land podcast. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next month. Oh, 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 oh